Good Tuesday morning from Paloma Media Studios in Chinatown. I'm Nancy Rommelman. I am. Uh, I finished a Substack last night called "Love and Mercy and Their Opposites," which I'm thinking actually today um, should be called "Come and Get Your Love," and and it might be here when I uh, when I post it and rename it. I am going to read it for you now. So here we go. You know how when you fall in love, all you want to do is kiss and kiss the person. How you will run across town in the rain to see them for 10 minutes or drive hundreds of miles to sit knee to knee in a bar, suspended in an amber orb that both stops time and allows you to imagine that from this point right here, you can do anything. You need to feel some of this for your work too, or I do. I spent on and off seven years writing to the bridge and there was no way I could have sustained the effort were it not for a sort of love or more exactly a fascination for the people I was writing about. They were not in and of themselves fascinating people. Amanda studied marketing in college and by age 29 had four children with three different men. Her husband Jason, the father of the two youngest children, worked for a company that maintained office equipment. The couple presented well or did for a while as behind the scenes the mainstays were eroding, the figurative floor and roof of Amanda's life washing away until she found herself on a bridge at 1.23 in the morning with the two youngest children. The boy, age four, asking his mother, did you just put her in the water or something? After he'd watched his seven-year-old sister drop over the railing. It was the last thing he would say to anyone. In the months before the crime took place, Amanda repeatedly expressed how much she loved Jason and why. He is the smoothest talker around and his memory allows him to form lies in a way that seems to be foolproof as well, unfortunately, she wrote. He taught me everything I know, and I will never not love him. There is a sociopath in To the Bridge, and spoiler alert, it is not Amanda, who, while possessing pathologies of her own, is guilty of what nearly all of us are, of wanting to be swept away, of believing things people tell us because they ratify something we want to believe about ourselves, that we are good, that we are helpful, that we are pretty, that if we don't waver, we will usher in better things together. I started thinking about this today after seeing on my media feeds a half dozen people creating origin stories and or fabricating troubles in order to win people to their side. The cultural landscape makes us this easy to do, divided as we are by four plus years of the serial provocateur that was Trump and a civic immune system weakened by COVID. I may find it reprehensible for, say, a pastor of a California megachurch to offer religious exemption forms from vaccination to anyone showing up on a Sunday, making it easier for them to caboose onto the 650,000 people in the U.S. already dead from COVID, but show up they did. There are always people ready to hand out such candy and people to receive it. For instance, Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy, whose turn in the Trump limelight is almost too on the nose and whose story, I found it today, rings about as true as James, Fra James Frey's made-up memoir of addiction. And there's some links here. Uh, I'll have a link here to the uh, written um, essay here, so you can go and check those out. Side note, I was writing for the LA Weekly when Frey's A Million Little Pieces was about to publish. My editor had an advanced copy on his desk, and I thought the cover intriguing. Take it, he said, and to tell him what I thought, which I did the following morning, something along the lines of, I got to page 20 and I am telling you it's bullshit. And though it's unbecoming, I know, to, tra to traffic in Schadenfreude, this clip 
of Frey squirming under questioning from Oprah. Well, it's kind of good. Lest we, Blurg, worry about Frey, he went on to form some sort of publishing outfit where other writers did the work and he took the credit, much as Andrew Cuomo did with his book. And speaking of, the former governor is a keen example of someone who manipulates others into thinking they're on the team, that he couldn't do it without them. We are almost uniformly good people who killed ourselves to accomplish his agenda for his political glory and for the feeling that he would make decisions with public service as his driving goal, said one of Cuomo's former staffers. I feel cheated out of that. It's attendant on us not to make heroes of the Cuomos, of the phrase, to not become midwives to their stories, but shit, Oprah fell for it, and so did I, in a story I told in To the Bridge of going to a VW dealership to buy a new car. After choosing a model, I walked into the office of the man who would arrange the financing. Mario was tall, with strong features and a large face. He sat behind his desk, tapping on his computer and speaking to me in a relaxed and engaged manner. He occasionally directed a comment to my husband, seated further away by the office door. Soon after he asked what I did for a living, Mario admitted to being a newshound himself, to reading The Economist online every morning, in German. I was impressed and turned to nod at my husband, whose expression was less enthusiastic. As Mario typed up my lease, we spoke in friendly ways about books and our shared lineage. He mentioned that he, too, was part Greek. After he offered tips about his favorite happy hour spots and told me he was deeply interested in reading an interview I'd done with serial killer John Wayne Gacy, Mario said I could come back tomorrow to grab a copy of the paperwork, which I had signed. Wasn't he an interesting guy? I commented to my husband as we walked to my new car. Din had no particular reply. Before I went to the dealership the next day, I rummaged around in the basement for a hard copy of the Gacy article for Mario. I had only two copies, but decided to give him one. I could always get it back later. I drove to the dealership to find Mario again at his desk. I told him I had brought him the article, and he looked at me as though he had never seen me before in his life. He told me I could get my paperwork at the front desk. I left him the article, certain that by the end of the day it would be in the trash. And when I read my lease, the rate was not what Mario had quoted, or maybe it was. I had not been paying close attention. I felt humiliated, though here also was proof. You can write about sociopaths. You can read all about them. And chances are you will not recognize one when he is taking you in. And while it is the case that my husband is harder to fool than most people, Mario did not that day target him. Also, there is no online edition of The Economist in German. I've written about many sociopaths, charming ones, murderous ones. Once you see how the mechanisms work, there is no mystery. There are only the Mike Lindells and James Frey's and Andrew Cuomo's, and I guess I am saying I am bored of them. So let's do a hard pivot, back to love, starting with last night's episode of Reservation Dogs. If there's a more heartfelt and sweet series on TV right now, tell me, please. And I give you a nice, nice little, uh, nice little one-minute clip of the series. Episode five. More love. From the new book, Far From Respectable, Dave Hickey and His Art, whose author, Daniel Oppenheimer, kindly sent me a copy after he saw me creaming all over his and Hickey's words a few weeks back on Twitter. And while our susceptibility can, per above, be a handicap, the flip side is an infinite suppleness, which Hickey speaks to as our great strength. From the book. As Americans, Hickey wrote, we are citizens of a large, secular, commercial democracy. We are relentlessly borne forth on the flux of historical change, routinely flung laterally by the 
exigencies of dreams and commerce. We are social creatures charged with inventing the conditions of our own sociability out of the fragile resource of our private pleasures and secret desires. We gather around icons from the worlds of fashion, sports, the arts, and entertainment as we would around a hearth. We trace infinite lines of transit around these strange attractors. The devotional icons for Hickey, the furniture of his Blue Eden, were people and things like Siegfried and Roy in Vegas, Waylon Jennings in Nashville, Chet Baker by the beach, Perry Mason on the UHF dial, Richard Pryor on the Sunset Strip, Leo Castelli on the Upper West Side, Bridget Riley in undulating waves of black and white, Robert Mitchum on the screen, Robert Maplethorpe's photos on a Coke dealer's coffee table on Hudson Street, Susan Sontag holding court at the St. Regis Hotel, and Dr. J rising up and under and around to complete the greatest layup in basketball history. The favorite piece I read, read this week, Love and Mercy in the Time of COVID, A Year in Film by Jay's, James Oliphant, and, and there's a link here in the written part. And not only because it leads with a movie I find beautiful and painful and moving and intriguing and original, that would be the movie Love and Mercy, um, but because Oliphant took the time to tell us how he grasped onto these movies like a lifeline, laying out this whole generous circle of handholds created for others. Matt Walsh and I got into Paloma Studio last week, talked about Juno bashing in Portland and bad COVID data, and I've been getting in there for a few minutes on weekday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Please join me. That will be uh, in 52 minutes from now. Uh, and bring your coffee and your comments. I am leaving you now with the title of last night's Res Dogs episode and such a good song by Native Boys, eh? Until next time. Here we go with my little uh, low-rent version of giving you a music outro. See you guys soon. <laughs>